You know, it's really unfortunate that today is potluck day because I was going to see if everyone wanted to go out to lunch and I'd buy, but <laughs> I guess that won't happen today. Yeah. <laughs> Next week I'm busy. I just I can't, yeah. Acts chapter 10. But before we do get there, I've just got one question for you. What is God calling us to do or to believe about outsiders? There's a mix of ways that we're told as Christians to live toward those outside the faith. On one far end of the spectrum, you have Christians, uh, some Christians that think that uh, really, they just can't hang out with unbelievers because they will be stained by the darkness of sin and the world as though sin is not in them. And then some Christians on the other side of the spectrum, uh, they only hang out with Christians. I mean, they only hang out with unbelievers. They don't hang out with Christians. And so you've got these two sides of the spectrum, and then you also have those that just don't care at all. But what does God say? Because there are outsiders. You and I were once outsiders to this faith. So how are we to treat those outside the kingdom? What are your thoughts toward them? Do you like them? Do you view them with any sort of prejudice or bias at all? Are you concerned with their salvation? Do you think less of them if they aren't holy? If they aren't like you, if they don't look like you, if they sin differently than you? When you see your unbelieving neighbor, friend, family member, that person, what happens in your heart? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act and believe toward these outsiders? Colossians 4, verse 5 says this. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. And that's great. How do we do that? How do we make the best use of the time walking in wisdom toward outsiders? God has given us this passage that we have today. So let's read. Acts 10, starting in verse 1. And it's a little lengthy. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among them who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, 
kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray now that that through your Holy Spirit-inspired word, you would show us exactly what it is you have for us to see today. By us seeing and, and reading and hearing what the apostles did in this time, God, would you change us? Would you let us learn from and and grow in and see what we need to repent and confess of in it? God, change us by your word. And so in that, if there is anything that I say, Father, that is against you, I pray that you would help us to all forget it. And if there is anything in this room that any of us think that is contrary to to you, to proper thinking and theology of who you truly are and what salvation is, God, would you remove it from all of us? Would you remove any distraction that we have from this past week, from this morning? God, whatever it is, let us be still before you. Calm our hearts so that we can just spend this time with each other and with you like it will be one day. Father, please help us, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are outsiders. You and I were once one of them. Colossians 4, 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. What is this wisdom that we are to walk in? What's the best use of our time with outsiders? We see in our text two ways. One, do not call common. And two, preach and testify. One, do not call common. And two, preach and testify. These are the two ways that we can walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. So let's look at the first one. Do not call common. We see Peter go up on the roof to pray, and he gets hungry, and he falls into a trance, and in it, he sees the heavens opened and something like a sheet descending with all kinds of animals on it. And then a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat, which is weird for him to hear. Because as a Jew, uh, kosher, think kosher. This is not supposed to happen. So he says, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. These are unclean animals. This can't happen. Uh, And then the voice says, no, no, no. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happens three times, and it's brought up three times throughout the passage. Then in verse 28, Peter figures out what happened and uh, says that God has shown him that he should not call any person common or unclean. And then in verse 35, the believers from among the circumcised who had come out with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Something is happening in the grand scheme of church. It's no longer a Jewish thing anymore. It's spilling over into the lives of Gentiles. And so everyone is amazed. And then in verse 18 of of chapter 11, excuse me, 
Then to the Gentiles, God also has granted repentance that leads to life. So it's not a normal thing, apparently. As people were amazed, and then there's uh, the fact of just how often God brings up in this passage this people, the Gentiles. But it clues us into what we're supposed to see over and over and over again. This is God's mission. To save for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Not just Jews. You and I are in this room because of Acts 10. Because of what all this means. Cornelius was not a Jew. He was from uh, Italy. He was a Gentile. But originally, so what, what this means is God's chosen instruments to bring forth the message of salvation were Jews. God chose a remnant of people to speak through, to give them the promise of the Messiah that they might be saved and so that they might walk in it so that others might see and, and think, I too want that. I want this Messiah. So the whole, it's the whole point of what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. This does not mean that all Jews were or are saved as it still had to be by faith that Abraham was uh, counted as righteous. But they were the chosen instrument that God used of his way. This is his way of getting the message of salvation out. And it's not because they were this great nation. Deuteronomy 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. God tells them, No, I love you. That's what makes you great. I don't love you because you are great. A few times the Israelites, a few, a few times the Israelites got this mixed up and and God had to to humble them by saying to them, like, I I didn't give that nation into your hands because you have this mighty army. Like, I, I gave them to, I gave that nation into your hands. I'm awesome. You are not awesome. I am awesome. And then so he let them lose the next battle just so that they would learn, like, what happened? We have all the same people, all the same strategy, but we lost this time. And God's like, I'm trying to tell you guys something. The degree to which you are awesome is the degree to which you are in me. But these are the Jews, God's chosen people to bring forth his message of salvation. They hold the message of salvation, the good news of the gospel. And this is the kind of Judaism, this, kind of, this is the kind of system that Jesus steps into when he comes to earth. They're still the chosen instrument for a time. Jesus was a Jew. The 12 disciples were, those were chosen. They were Jews. Paul was a super Jew. He was a Pharisee. But Jesus gives the great commission in Acts 1, the very beginning, to all believers. It says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, largely Jewish areas, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're seeing what's happening. It started with the Jews, and it starts in Jerusalem and Judea, but it's flowing over into, until one day it will cover the earth. This thing is no longer about making someone a Jew from Judea, but making a Christian from Christ. And it's extremely countercultural. Jews were not supposed to mix with Gentiles. The Jews called them pagans, called them unclean. 
called them dogs. And not like a frou-frou, cute dog. Dogs. And yet now God is calling out to Peter, what I have called clean, do not call common. Do not call them unclean. No wonder it's all over the passage. Why? Because we were all created in the image of God. And in Christ, we can all be children of God in glory. No matter what we look like or what we have done or thought or said. How do we know this? Because God saved you. God saved me. We were not at the top of this great list of people for God to save. Only one man made it on that list. Galatians 3 says uh, this in verse 28. There is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We're all one now. It becomes about bringing the Gentile and the Jew together under the same banner, forgiven. And this removes any morsel of truth that might remain that we can base racism or sexism or classism on. There's nothing left for that. There's no truth there any longer. The ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. Because we're all sinners. We will praise God together as those forgiven and cleansed, and that is more important than how we look, think, act, or or were raised. Murderers and adulterers will praise God in glory forever together. You mean that there will be people in heaven with Jesus and with me that have killed people and have murdered and, and those who slept around on their spouse? That doesn't seem fair. Jesus in Matthew 5 says that those who are merely angry with a brother are guilty of murder. And that those who look upon another lustfully are guilty of adultery. Does it still seem not fair? Absolutely it's not. We don't want fair. We want mercy. Christianity is not about being awesome and being better than that guy in prison or that person who (laughs) sins in that way. It is seeing ourselves as the chief of sinners, as the worst sinner on the planet, even worse than that guy in prison, and letting that fact drive us to the throne room of grace for help. You and I are not awesome. We are not worthy. We are not beautiful as we are. We are not lovely. We are not special. We are utterly sinful. The only good thing about us as believers is God in us. We have to realize that and we have to admit this, that we are fully capable of committing every atrocity that we hear on the news because that is our heart. It is darkened by sin and so it is fertile soil for every kind of sin. Otherwise, we become self-righteous. 
And we think, oh man, I'm, I'm way better than this guy. I'm way better than that girl. At least I don't sin in that way. It's the wrong way to look at it. It should be my heart is dark. Uh, one man, he was standing outside and saw a murderer being dragged down the steps of the courtroom in handcuffs, and everybody's asking this guy, like, oh, what are your thoughts on this? And he says, there but for the grace of God go I. That's how we have to view any sort of sin. There but for the grace of God go I. Any thought that goes against God's glory is sinful, and that's every one of us. So there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian because we know and we see the depths of our own sin and the darkness of our own hearts and minds, and there should be no such thing as a Christian who cognitively understands salvation. There should be no one who's like, yep, I see why God saved me. No, no. It should be a complete and utter mystery to us that God would save a wretch like me. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor any difference that means anything more than the God and salvation through Jesus that we share. Lest we forget, like our forefathers, God is awesome, not us. But this is also a beautiful truth about the kingdom and about why God is showing us over and over again, no, do not call them unclean. Because look around this room. We are all completely different. We look different. We sound different. We dress different. What we leave here and go and do later is different. But family... Adopted as sons and daughters. The God who saved you, yeah. He saved me too. We are family. You've been forgiven too. Paul, a Jew, writes this in Ephesians 3. This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is our view of those outsiders, of those outside of this faith. This is our view of them. This could be them. We have to remove any sort of, oh man, they they are horrible, they are sinful. No, we are horrible and sinful, but we have been invited into a kingdom by grace, and so now we go and we say, listen, yes, you have sinned. There is something better, greater, more amazing waiting for you in the good news of Jesus. And so we have to take off the blinders that can make us view anyone in any sort of way other than, man, he could be a part of the kingdom. She could be a part of this kingdom. What one day will be true of all believers in Christ, the redemption of glory that we will all share together It will be something like what we are about to do in potluck together, but in glory forever, and Jesus will be there, and it's going to be amazing. We might get to share that with others. That is our view. Not common, not unclean. 
in the same way that Jesus did not discriminate against us, even though he could have. We do not discriminate against those we are around, called to bring this message of hope to. Cornelius was not a Jew, but a Gentile. He was an unclean man as far as culture and society said. And yet, we will see him one day in glory by the grace of God. And the truth is, you and I would not be in the kingdom if it weren't for God's grace to this Gentile. Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So how do you view those outside the kingdom? Even though they, you may not say they are unclean, what do your actions say? Who do you spend the most of your time with? Who dominates your prayers? Is it you? Who do you know currently that is an outsider that you can spend time with as you were once in those same shoes? If you do think that outsiders are unclean, even a little bit, it is a sin. But if we confess our sins, Jesus is ready and able to cover them. And by the grace of God, this can change in us. We can't sit here and think like, oh, well, I've never thought that way. I will never think that way. It might happen. It might be happening right now. We have to bring it to the light so that God can cover it. If it stays in darkness, what's the point? By the grace of God, this can change in us. What God has called clean, do not call unclean, especially in your thoughts. But then the second thing is preach and testify. Do not call common but, and preach and testify. Look at verse 1 again. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what, no, what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. One thing that we have to point out is that the text is not leading us to believe that Cornelius was a believer, but simply that he was just a great guy. He feared God. He led his family to fear God. He gave money and helped people, and he prayed continually to God, but he was not saved, not yet. Look at Acts 11. You might have to turn the page. Acts 11, verse 13. He told us, how he had seen the angel standing in his house saying, send to Joppa and bring Simon called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And then flip back to Acts 10, verse 43. Uh, what Peter does is he brings his gospel message to a close with these words. To him, Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness of sins is salvation. No one is saved whose sins against God are not forgiven by God. And Peter says that that forgiveness comes through believing in Christ and it comes through the name of Christ. He says, I'm here so that you may hear the gospel and receive forgiveness in the name of Christ by believing in him. And I know we're going over everywhere, but flip back to Acts 11 
verse 18. When the apostles hear Peter uh, tell the story about Cornelius, uh, Luke, as he's writing this, says, And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. They did not already have it. They received it when they heard the message about Christ and turned to believe and follow him. This means that works of righteousness and religious sincerity do not solve the problem of sin. That's why we say it nearly every week, but we say it all the time. Good works do not save you. There's no list of good deeds that you can amount to each day that will cover the stain of sin. It's the fault in the question of why do bad things happen to good people? I get the question. I understand it. But truly, there are no good people. The only hope is to believe in Jesus. It was true then, and it's still true today. There was one message that Cornelius needed to hear to be saved. You can do all the right things. You can show up to church. But if you do not believe in the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has secured your your eternity on your behalf by his life and death, then there is no eternal life for you. This truth is elsewhere described in Romans 10 as this. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Obeying the gospel here means proclaiming the gospel. This is, what good, this is what good news does in a human. We hear it, we tell about it. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is why Peter gets into what he gets into in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. He's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. With the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. God became a curse for man. There is no peace between God and his rebellious creation in their sin, in our sin. But God offers peace through Jesus. He offers forgiveness through Jesus. And we have peace with God only when his anger at us because of our sins is put away and replaced by peace. And that comes through Jesus. That's the way it had to be done. 
Jesus was Lord of all and yet became a man. He had a hometown. He was known by his friends and kinsmen there. He worked in the carpenter shop. The Lord of all became a human like you and like me, only sinless, so that the sacrifice of his death would satisfy the wrath and anger of God so that there could be peace between us and God. And then Peter lifts up Jesus as alive from the dead because God raised him after three days. Look at verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Jesus is alive. He raised him from the dead. He vindicated him and he gave him a name above every name so that every tongue will one day confess and every knee will bow that he is indeed the Lord of all. And his resurrection was bodily. He's not a ghost. He's not a mere spirit. There were witnesses and they ate and drank with him. He ate some fish. I think it's cool. He has a new resurrection body with flesh and bones like we will in our resurrection body. Jesus did not disappear into some ethereal realm. He's at the right hand of the Father, setting the stage for the new heavens and the new earth that will come one day. And then finally, Peter lifts up Jesus as the final judge of every person in the universe, whether they are dead or alive. Verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. Commanded us, believers, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be the judge of the living and dead. Every one of us will stand before Jesus Christ as our judge. Just as surely as we are in this same room with each other and we can look and see each other, we will stand before Jesus, sinful us, before a holy God. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, will decide where we spend eternity. And what he decides in that moment, you and I decide now. We will either be condemned justly for all our sins and sent to everlasting torment, or we will be acquitted, pardoned, and received into everlasting joy. It was the Jews that uh, the message was passed on to so that they could preach and proclaim and testify the good news, and then it was passed on to the Gentiles. And why that's important for you and I to see is that we are Gentiles. This is you. This is me. We are called to preach and to testify to this good news. Preach and testify are two different words, almost mean the same thing, but testifying could be just the way I live my life shows that Jesus has saved me. But they're together. It is, here is my life and here is my message. Do you see how they are similar? Jesus has saved me. Jesus can save you too. You are not unclean. I'm unclean, and look what God did for me. We are now those entrusted with this message of the good news of Jesus. There's not a sense in which we can believe and not preach. This news is that good. 
God's chosen people to bring forth this message of salvation is no longer the Jews, no longer the Gentiles in this story. It is you, it is me, it is those who have been made righteous by faith to shine bright as a forgiven, redeemed, free son or daughter of the risen King Jesus. Colossians 4.5 Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Do you preach and testify? First to yourself and then to others. When someone looks at you, do they see the light of Christ? And walking in wisdom means you know what to do. By the Holy Spirit in you, you know whether or not a conversation is needed, whether or not it is just a, well, just right now I'm going to love this person with an action. You have the wisdom in you, the Holy Spirit. Walking in wisdom toward outsiders looks like not thinking them unclean as they are God's image bearers. And then we, pre- we preach and we proclaim and we testify the gospel of eternal life through trust. Now, we have to be honest. That's tough. That's impossible. Because if the first part of the gospel is true, that I am a sinner, that we are sinners, then how is a sinner ever supposed to proclaim this good news? How is a sinner ever supposed to not view someone else in a way that is not what God has for us? How are we to do this work that God is certainly calling us to? Because I I don't know about you, but when I read it, I thought, oh, this is not me. How do we do this? Legitimately, continually, effectually, for God to be glorified well in us and through our lives, we too must believe the gospel. Which is why we have verse 43. To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You and I cannot do this perfectly. We will sin. We will will fail and fall into sin again. And so we believe again for the forgiveness of our sins. Before we meet Jesus as judge, May we meet him as the forgiver of sins. And if we believe in him, we will receive forgiveness of sins through his name and be pardoned as though you will stand before him as a judge and he will have nothing but pardon for you. If we believe in his finished work, we are saved in him. And if we are forgiven and pardoned, free from the power of sin and darkness, then there is now no act that God calls us to that is impossible for us to do. We are only to obey if we have first believed. God freed the Israelites from uh, the Egyptians and then gave them the law of what to do. Freedom must come first. This is the fuel of the church's missionary effort. This is why we are partnered with organizations like Acts 29 that see churches planted across the globe. This is why Part of our mission statement is to be gospel-centered as a whole. 
We want to preach as though the doors and windows are open, as though anyone can hear. And if anyone does hear, our prayer is that they would hear how to be saved. But it's not just for that. It's also for our sake. Because what does it mean for me if I was saved decades ago? Why do I need to hear how to be saved again? Why do I need to hear the gospel? Why is it important that we are gospel-centered as a church? We live in a desert land, and there is only one well. Jesus Christ and him crucified. No matter if we've been a believer for one second or for a hundred years, the same Jesus saves, sustains, builds up our faith, reminds us of our identity as Christians, and gives us hope all over again. (coughs) Why do we need the gospel over and over again? Because we sin over and over again. So we all return back to the same God by the same means of the same cross. There's no graduating from the good news of the gospel. There's only growing in trusting in that same good news. This is also important for us to know, though, because as easy as it is to believe that we can be saved by our works, it's just as easy to think that we can stay in God's good graces by our works. Both are terribly wrong. The same grace of the cross of Jesus Christ saves and sustains our faith. Jesus Christ is the founder and perfecter of our faith. There was nothing you could do to save yourself, and there's nothing you can do, believer, to make yourself lovely before God. Which sounds hopeless, and it is, outside of Jesus. But if we have Jesus, then he is the reason we are lovely. And if he is the reason we are lovely, we will be lovely as long as he is. Jesus is our hope. But this also means there's nothing you can do to make yourself unsaved. Rest in that. There is no sin if you are a true believer in Jesus that the cross did not completely erase forever. There's nothing you did to save yourself, so there's nothing you can do to undo that. Now, does this mean we can just sin as, uh, because there's nothing we can do to undo that? By no means. A freed man should not return to slavery, but instead bow at the one who made him free and say, where will you have me go? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 2 says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, so he's saying this to believers, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, present future tense. Coupled with Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We were saved at one point by grace. We are sustained by grace now, and it will sustain us until the day it brings us home. Works do not save us. They do not keep us saved, nor do they undo our saving. 
And works will not see us through to glory. Only grace can do that. Works do not save us. So what is our proper response? To believe. To trust. That the work needed to save me and the work needed to keep me saved was finished. Was accomplished once and for all at the cross. Since we are sinful, we need always, always to grow in our belief in the grace that was given to us, no matter how unbelievable it might be, no matter how mysterious it might be. Our prayer is, I believe, help my unbelief. This is how we change. This is how we grow into what God has called us to do. How we do this work is not by going to do it first, but by running to the gospel first, to believe again in who Christ has made us into, and then we rest in it. And we rest in the good news and remember and overfilled, overflowing, overwhelmed with joy, we go. And so our prayer is help us to believe, Father. To help us believe this morning, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. By this body and this blood, we remember what Christ did for us and we celebrate what we receive as a result of His sacrifice. And we are comforted yet again in the gospel. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table as part of the family of faith. However, if you are an unbeliever or if you're in unrepentant sin, we ask that you would remain in your seat in this time. 1 Corinthians also says that you would be eating and drinking in this way in an unworthy manner. But if this is you, you are not without hope. This is exactly what the gospel is for. If you're in unrepentant sin, the good news for you is that there is no wrath left on you in Christ. He fully satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf by this body and this blood. If you are truly in Christ, there's no good reason why you should not turn to your Father, no matter how you might feel. Feelings do not overcome the truth of the gospel. It's quite the opposite. Believe again today. Turn to your Father by faith. And if you're an unbeliever, as it sits right now, there is no covering for you. You are what Scripture calls dead in your sins and trespasses against a holy God, and you are completely deserving of a just, eternal punishment for them. There is no other way to eternal life except through the Son. But there is a way. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose again to victorious life, all that you and I can be forgiven. Believe in this finished work of Jesus on your behalf, and you can live eternally too. For all of us, here is our prayer in this time. 
Father, I confess my sins to you, and I am sorry. Would you, by your grace, allow me to believe that I may live? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your time to pray through what God has given you in his word, to pray through whatever it is the Holy Spirit is convicting you to think or believe what, of everything that God has commanded us to. Take your time to work through it, and then uh, when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab them, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute. deep, how far, how wide this love goes, as far as the east is from the west, ever reaching, ever chasing, ever steadfast, not because we are worthy, but because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That we too, without Jesus, are dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving of no love at all. Yet you are slow to anger, gracious and steadfastly loving toward us. Father, would you help us to believe in this good news for us so that we can rest in it, so that we can be rejuvenated by it, so that the weight of sin can be removed from our shoulders yet again, so that we can be, rem be reminded of our heavenly status and position as forgiven. God, please, Help us to believe. And we pray this in Jesus' name.